Good morning. Don't mind me. I'm just setting up. You uh, are one of those who's like, hey, it's 10 o'clock. I got to get out of here. Blessings to you. Mark 12, 12 to 17 is our passage today. Let me read it to you. Then the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders looked for a way to arrest him because they knew that he had spoken this parable against them. But they were afraid of the crowd, so they left him and went away. Later they sent some of the Pharisees and the Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. They came to him and said, Teacher, we know that you are a man of integrity. You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. So is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? Should we pay or shouldn't we pay? But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. It's like his superpower. Why are you trying to trap me, he asked. Bring me a denarius and let me look at it. They brought the coin and, they, and he asked them, Whose image is this? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Then Jesus said to them, Give back to Caesar what is Caesar's, and to God what is God's. And they were amazed at him. Father, I pray this morning... For your word to speak, God, I thank you for the men who are serving in Ethiopia and just for that testimony and that power of just your children there. Pray your blessing on them. Help us to see what you have us to see today. In your name, amen. Uh, one of the ways that I try to serve our community and pastor our community, uh, a lot of you know that um, I'm one of the chaplains at the Los Gatos Police Department, and I get questions about that a lot. So one of the things I do is I do a lot of ride-alongs with police officers, and so I see what you're doing around town. <laughs> but one of the first times, I think it was the first time, uh, they really didn't tell me what I was supposed to be doing or not doing, but what they did give me was this shirt, and it says D. Gustafson on it, and I have a patch. I look just like them, and I have a badge. It says chaplain on it, so it's not that intimidating. I don't flash it or whatever. I have a jacket, so I look a lot like them. And uh, I was riding in the car uh, with this police officer, getting to know him, because they always tell me we don't like to talk about anything. And I'm like, okay. And then they just talk the whole time about themselves and everything they've gone through. And I'm like, wow, that sounds really difficult. And they're crying. No, they're not really crying. So uh, they always like to pull over people when I'm with them because I think they feel like they're impressing me. So if you see me in a police car, we're about to pull you over. One hint I can give you, make sure your registration is up to date because that's just what they seem to find. So there you go. Helpful hint. You didn't know this. So I always, when I say this, I'm like, so we pulled over this guy. We didn't do anything. I'm just sitting in the car. This guy gets pulled over. And uh, his registration is way out of date. And all of a sudden, the police officer comes back, and he goes, uh, you may want to stay in the car. And I'm like, I didn't know I was supposed to get out. I, I, have, I don't know the rules. Like, this is my first time. And so he goes, just stay in the car. And I'm like, should I text my wife at this point? What's, hap what's, what's happening? So he goes, this is about to get elevated. And I'm like, we're at Blossom Hill Park right over here. Like, what's, what's about to happen? 
So anyways, there was a uh, warrant for this guy's arrest. Like, they were, like, looking for this guy for a while in San Jose. He had done some things, and um, all of a sudden, he had turned him, and they had his handcuffs, and they put him in the car sitting right behind me, and the police officers that were all, were all talking. And so it's just me and this guy. And I didn't know the rules. So out of my mouth, because I wasn't skilled at this, I'm like, hey, how you doing? <laughs> Which was, like, the stupidest question. And then he said, I'll make this G-rated for you. Who in the heavens are you? And I said, oh, I'm the chaplain. And he's like, oh, dear, you know, whatever. And then I said, well, I'm going to take the opportunity. I go, would you like to talk? <laughs> he's like, heck no, I don't want to talk. And so the police officers are still talking out there. And then all of a sudden he goes, wait, will it help my cause if, you, if I talk to you? And once again, in my head, I'm like, I'm not even sure I'm supposed to be speaking to you at this moment. And, uh, and I'm like, well, it could help your cause, not in the way you're thinking, <laughs> but like in the heavenly realms. And he's like, dear Lord, what is going on? And finally, the police come back and they're like, were you talking to him? I'm like, yeah. And they're like, awesome. I'm like, wait, that's, I can do that? They go, you can do whatever you want. And I'm like, heck yeah. <laughs> What's funny about it is, when we're walking around town, I know I don't have any real authority. <laughs> I pretend I do. I mean, I have spiritual authority. I pray and I do those kinds of things. But what's funny is just the interactions is people don't realize I don't really have the authority. When I'm walking in with the police officer, they start telling me what's going on. And I'm like, uh-huh, uh-huh. And I'm like, you really should talk to this guy over here. I don't sit in the police car and go, hey, I got a few ideas for you guys. Let me, let me give you some feedback. I defer to them. I'm like, I just let you guys do it. I know my realm, and that is really just to sit and encourage you and to listen to you. I willingly give to them what is theirs, of course. And in this situation where we see these guys trying to trick Jesus again, the real issue was they weren't willing to give him what was his. So they come to trick him. They come to say, this is my agenda. Jesus, you're ruining all of this. In Jesus' amazing ways, that Jesus doesn't find himself in debates. What he does is he just reveals himself. He keeps saying, this is who I am. We see the challenge. They sent some Pharisees and Herodians to Jesus to catch him in his words. The Herodians were a non-religious group, supporting Herod, supporting the way of Rome. They believed in the government should pay for the needs of the people. That's kind of their approach. Then there was the Pharisees, who on the other hand were members of the religious. Like if you act a certain way and behave a certain way, society would be better and God would bless us. And although the Herodians and the Pharisees were at opposite ends of the political spectrum, they agreed upon the conclusion that Jesus was dangerous because he challenged their current way of living. The story goes on. It starts with a bit of flattery, right? Can you just picture this? Like, Son of God, we know who Jesus is, but they didn't really. And it starts with flattery. Teacher, we know that you're a man of integrity. 
You aren't swayed by others because you pay no attention to who they are. But you teach the way of God in accordance with the truth, which to them, they're like trying to puff him up for that very line. You don't teach, but you don't pay attention to who they are. Do you think they have missed who Jesus is in that moment? Of course he pays attention to who they are. And he's paying attention to who these people are in this moment. So they throw out the big question that they have come up with, probably behind closed doors, let's get them. Is it right to pay the imperial tax to Caesar or not? So here's the issue. If Jesus says no, the Herodians would charge him with treason against Rome. They would say, like, you're not supporting our system. And if he said yes, then the Pharisees would accuse him of disloyalty to the Jewish nation. So they really think he has them. But Jesus knew their hypocrisy. I joked as I read it, that's his superpower. Jesus knew their hearts. Why are you trying to trap me? He asked me, bring me a Daenerys. Let me look at it. He's like, I, I don't got a coin. Anybody got, anybody got a coin? I'm not literally asking, but if you want to throw money at me, I'll take it. <laughs> they brought the coin, and he asked them, who's what? Image. Whose image is on this coin? And whose inscription? Caesar's, they replied. Jesus like, then give whosoever image back to that image. But give to God what is God. I wonder what he meant by give to God what is God's. As you looked at this coin, this picture of Caesar, and what was inscripted on this coin was Caesar is God. So Jesus is like, if, if this is what you want to follow, that if this is God, just give this back to him. But as he looked at people's lives, he said, you too have an image. You too were made in someone's image. They looked at the coin. He looked at people. He said, you were made in the image of God. Jesus is still talking about an image. Jesus is still referencing something significant. Last week, Christy brilliantly talked about this parable. This parable was about a landowner who was renting, and they, people, they, they kept sending like, prophets and so, you know, all these people to tell them what was happening, and finally he sends his son to tell them what's happening. And, um, they killed the son. Uh, and he's referencing this parable from um, Isaiah. And they knew what Jesus was saying was, you're going to kill me. You guys are going to kill me. So they were so mad that, they, that Jesus said that they were going to kill him that they wanted to kill him. Which is kind of a confusing thing. Like, I can't believe he just said that. Let's kill him. Wait, that's what he just said we were going to do. So this moment, this story is so shocking to them. This give to God what is God's was so shocking to them. But not today, really. So let me see if I can make it a little more shocking. 
There's a sociologist, his name is Philip Reif, and he wrote back in 1959 and continued to write just observations about culture. And he called it three different worlds. Now, these aren't geographical worlds, they're not socioeconomic worlds, they're just cultural worlds. He called them the first, second, and third world. The first world is this. First worlds are characterized by a variety of mythology and gods. This could be called Old Testament times when there was gods in all the different places they believed. This is like Greek mythology. This is like Native American societies, Plato, all these kinds of things. And the idea is that your fate is up to how the gods are feeling about you. There's still cultures like this today. This doesn't just end, but it's the idea that there's an authority outside of you, and however God, the gods think of you, is how your ending is. There's a second world, and they're characterized not a belief in fate, but by faith. This is Christianity. It could be Judaism. There are cultural codes that are rooted in the belief in a specific and divine and sovereign being who stands over creation. This kind of culture is shaped and formed by uh, authoritative sacred text and human interaction with God. First and second worlds are similar in that, that their social order based on a, a deeper sacred order. They both agree that there's an authority outside of me. So even though it was 1959, he said a culture is coming, and if it's not even here, it might be already here that's going to rupture this whole point. Third worlds are characterized by their rejection of any sacred order and authority directed at self-identity. Here's their mantra. The mantra is forbid forbidding. The slogan of the third world, though he did not articulate this in 1959, but we certainly can in 2023, is you be you. Me be me. This is validated by everybody, at least in our Western culture. We see this in all walks of life. We see this in education. We see this in the church. We see this in the family. We see this in relationships. You just got to be you. You just got to be true to yourself. Decisions are made by this. I just need to do this because I have to be true to myself. But yet we rely on another person like this is me, right? This is me being true to myself. And you're like, yeah, you do you. That's who you are. Okay, that's what I'm going to do, but there's a trap. Because this ideology and all ideologies need someone to be validated. They need somebody else to say, yeah, that's true, that's true. We need others to say, yep, that is you. There's this explosion that I must be seen as I have reasoned myself to be from inside. What I'm not saying is that we shouldn't reinforce and, and encourage each other. What I'm not saying is that you're like, if that dream came from you, like, no, no, that's, it's, that, that's not from you. Don't be proud of yourself. No, we should cultivate and encourage and love and support our kids and each other. We should be doing that. I'm pretty sure Scripture says that constantly. Encourage one another, bless one another, reinforce one another, support each other. But when it's like, this is who I have created myself to be in my, in my desires, in my goodness, in my correctness, in my conservativeness, in my liberalness, starts to fall apart. 
And the real danger comes when we frame Jesus and the teaching of Scripture to fit our lens instead of having Jesus be the lens of how we see the world. The greatest value in this third world culture is being even authentic to ourselves. And some of you are like, wait, I agree. What, what, what are you saying to me right now? It's great to be authentic as the end result of what has happened, not just being authentic as a process. There are people that I say to me often, the young people as I coach them or whatever, they do something and it's way outside of what they should be doing. So they confess and they're like, well, at least I was honest about what I did. Do I get some bonus points for that? And I'm like, well, I'm glad you're honest, but the end result is that you still did this. The problem comes when we interlock what we like and start saying this is what God wants. The third world culture faces an unprecedented challenge of justifying themselves on the basis of themselves. Sociologists tell us no culture in history has sustained itself merely as a culture, no matter how attractive it appears. So into this culture that we are in right now, that you are living, if you were to hear Jesus say, give to God what is God's, you might feel the friction a little bit more. Meaning, you don't belong to you. You don't belong to your job. You don't belong to your past. You belong to God. Now, some might be feeling like, ooh, that's a shame. That makes feel heavy. I would say Jesus is saying the opposite. You're wondering where your identity lies. You're wondering where your peace and foundation is. Jesus is saying, your image tells me that you were made by my Father. It's with him. There's a shadow side of this. The first and second worlds contain a lot of fear. Fear of what God might do. Do. But the third world is controlled by anxiety. The anxiety of maybe not being authentic but from who we have intercreated us to be. It's into those words that Jesus is saying, give to God what is God's. Another thing I do as far as pastoring our community is I spend a lot of time on a football field coaching some young guys in football. And I've often been told over my last 30 years of coaching football, because it's just in a public school, the separation of church and state. And I go, okay. They're like, do you ever talk to your kids about God? I'm like, every single day. You know why? Because they ask me. I don't bring it up. I don't go, hey, guys, rally up. Let me talk to you a few words about Jesus and uh, the sin in your life. Never. Here's an example. Here's another quick one. Friday night, coaching a football game. Kid hurts his shoulder a little bit. He's like, coach, will you pray for me? I'm like, sure. He's like, no, no, right now. Lay hands on me. Pray for me. So if you're at the football game on the sideline, you're like, I'm watching the game. No, there's a pastor doing presence of God with a kid praying for his shoulder that moment. And he's like, amen. He didn't go back in the game or anything. But, <laughs> but another event, just in case you're wondering what happens. You're like, Dale, you might get fired. I'm a volunteer. 
We were in the middle of practice. We were in a huddle. They were doing something. It was kind of a little break. And one of the kids said to me, who's one of my, one of my close friends, I guess, at this point. I mean, he's 14. But, you know, I guess we're kind of emotionally at the same point. Who knows? He uh, looked at me and he goes, Coach, I'm a, I'm a, and then he looked at the kid next to him and goes, what am I again? He, atheist. Oh, yeah, I'm an atheist. And I'm like, oh, how did you develop that deep belief that there's no God? He doesn't really know what I'm saying to him. He goes, well, there's too much suffering in this world for there to be a God. I'm like, oh, man, there is a lot of pain in this world. I mean, it's awful. And I hate it. That's kind of some of the, it bothers me. I mean, does it bother you? And he goes, yeah, it's, it's the worst. It's awful. I'm like, man, that's why I do a lot of the work that I do with people and my heart for Rwanda. I'm like, it's just a little dent, but I, I just feel like God's called me to do. And I really thought that he had a passion for this. So I'm like, what are some of the things you do because you're so concerned about the world? Crickets. Silence. He's just looking at me. And then he said, well, it's not my problem they're suffering. I just need to take care of me, coach. If, I, if I'm a better me, that's all I can do. And now if I'm a better me, that makes the world better. Maybe their pain and suffering goes away. I mean, if that is not a reflection of me be me and you be you. Like, he was so convinced. And I'm like, could there be a God could you be saying that there's no God just because of what you just said, that you just want to be you? And he's like, whoa. And he looked at the kid next to him, and he's like, what does that mean? And he's like, I think coach just proved you wrong. <laughs> but I'm not sure. I'll talk to him later. This is all right in front. It's hilarious. And one time I said, right after that, I go, you want me to just tell you what, what God thinks of you? He's like, I don't know. I go, well, do you want me to tell you what I think of you? He goes, Coach, I always want to hear what you think of me. You see, that's how we take second world and bring it into the third world. Because third world says, and I understand, it's me be me. To bring the second world, if there is a sacred order, there is a God, we simply say, let me tell you what God thinks about you. Because it started from this point of saying, Jesus saying, give to God what is God's. I remember growing up, I would hear this sermon being preached. Well, this, what this means is you pay your taxes and then you tithe. Okay, so Jesus is three days away probably from dying. And you think he's challenged by this religious leaders and the Herodians, and he's like, let me say a few things about tithing in the future. I think Jesus is saying something so brilliant. And our human minds just go, no, no, he's just talking about pay your taxes and then give 10%. Jesus is saying so much more than that. He's like, this image, give it to him. But give me everything about you. Because you're my image. You were made in the image of God. So the ideology of just you be you becomes, no, God be God in me. Do you hear me? The way we embrace and understand when just when, when Jesus says, give to God what is God's, it is God be God in me. This week I got frustrated and mad and I was not happy with my response. Not because of shame, it's just like that's not who I want to be. In these words, God says, I love you, but let me be me in you. And let that come out of you. 
Because you have a calling on your life. And your call is not just about what you're doing, but it's about who you are becoming. You're called to serve Jesus. You're also to become more and more like Jesus. Another way to say this is that you are called first to salvation, then to sanctification, and then serving. I guess it comes down to this, is that whose image are we giving into? (laughs) Whose image are we following? You see, we're all looking for a voice, a voice that says who you are. That is not a sign of weakness. That is the reality of our lives. Who am I? What does God's voice say? He offers affirmations, not accusations. And this is what followers of Jesus should be doing as well, offering affirmations, not accusations. He made you in his image. His image is on you. God knows your worst and your best. The one who knows your worst self loves you best. So Jesus takes a look at this coin and sees an image and it says on that thing, Caesar is Lord. And he's like, well, then just give to the Lord what you think is his Lord's. But then he looks and says, those who are made in the image of God. Give the things that last forever to the kingdom that lasts forever. Give the things to the kingdom that doesn't last because that's not going to, but give the things that matter to the kingdom that lasts forever. I think what some of you might need to hear this morning is we are each stamped with God's inscription. As he looked at the coin, it says Caesar at Lord's. He looks at people and it says Jesus is Lord. My Father made his Lord. As we all need a voice, not out of weakness of validation, but of just our desire to know that's how we're created. This is God's voice to you. What does he say of you? Some of you might need to open your hands and receive this this morning. I know I did. You are sought after. You are precious in his sight. You are a new creation in Christ. You are forgiven. You are loved. You are accepted. You are a child of God. You are Jesus' friend. You are free. You are the temple of God. You are God's treasured possession. You are complete in Christ. You are called. You are an ambassador of the Most High God. You are God's masterpiece. You are more than a conqueror through Jesus who loves you. If you were counting on your neighbor to say who you are, they're going to say, oh, you be you. You're such a nice person. And yet what God is saying to the image of his Father, what Jesus is saying, let God be God, when we let God be God and we give to God what is God's, this is what God is saying, who you are. You may be afraid that you've messed up, but the depth of your sin is not greater than God's grace. It is not greater than what God says about you. As Thomas Merton wrote, 
To say that I am made in the image of God is to say that love is the reason for my existence. For God is love. Love is my true identity. Selflessness is my true self. Love is my true character. Love is my name. To give to God is not a burden. It is not a shaming. It is not that you are incorrect. It's simply saying, stop trying to just be you on your own and let me be me with you. The beautiful thing is that when we come to God, we're not just a better version of our old self. We're a new creation. The Apostle Paul wrote, Therefore, if anyone is in Christ, the new creation has come. The old is gone. The new is here. The new is here. It's for you. It's for me. So really what Jesus is saying, let God have what is God so I can make something new and beautiful in you. Are you ready just to let go? of the old. So many of us may even know these truths, but we're hanging on to lies that Satan's been telling us maybe for years. Honestly, my church, I've believed a lie for years that I am working on letting go. And I hate it. You are listening to lies you have a hard time letting go. I don't know what they are, but there's things he just keeps bringing back up. And he's like, yeah, you're doing great. Yeah, but there's this thing. Let God be God's. He says, come and let me come in and just free you from that. And then as followers, followers of Jesus, we just remind each other, you are a new creation. You are new. That is what giving to God what is God means. Let's pray.